Welcome to Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. We're so glad that you are listening with us today, and we hope that this message is a blessing. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started a series called Quietly Questioning. And the idea being that a lot of times we wrestle with faith, we wrestle with doubt, and we have questions. Sometimes they're verbalized. Other times we just quietly sit with them. And we wanted to create space to, to get those out and to say, hey, if you have these questions, you're not alone. And, and let's see what they are and if we, can, if we can wrestle with them together. And so last week I talked about how people leaving the church is much more complex than just, well, these people wanna rebel and they're pushing back against Christian ethics. While that does happen with some, um, there's a, a much more complex and broader spectrum of people who are walking away from church. For some people, it's, man, the church has become overly dogmatic about issues that they don't see as that important. Um, Others would say, man, church hurt and and trauma has happened for me, and and I'm just struggling to deal with that. Others have simply drifted. That's the largest group, people who would say, I can't really put my finger on anything. It's not a question. It's not an event. I just stopped going, and over the course of time, I looked back and thought, I don't know if I really need that anymore. But one particular group of people that have been identified as, as leavers have been classified as modern leavers. And modern leavers are those who would say they have an intellectual issue with Christianity. And one of the, the bigger influences in the intellectual movement or the, the modern lever movement would be someone like Richard Dawkins. And so Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Dilemma, talks about the God of the Bible as being unpleasant, jealous, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, an ethnic cleanser. And so when we look at his description of the God of Scripture, we see a cosmic bully. The picture is not of a good God, but an evil God. And so what's interesting, just a quick side note, is Richard Dawkins in other writings would actually say that he doesn't believe evil and good even exist. He doesn't believe in an absolute moral standard. So in his own words, he would say, we're just genes and electrons with blind, pitiless indifference. And so for him to launch an accusation about God being a moral monster or evil, he would actually have to borrow from a theistic worldview to make his claim. So, so that feels a little bit inconsistent, but with, with, with or without that, as we go through the Old Testament, we will find stories that if we single them out, will paint a picture of God that seems to align with what he's described. And so when we look at things like genocide in the world, whether that's in Armenia or Cambodia or Rwanda or Bosnia, as we look at these horrific events, a question we have to wrestle with is, is the God of Scripture really any different? Is the God of Scripture any different and is he an evil God? All right, so in Joshua chapter six, this is a, a text that a lot of people struggle with when they read it. And for some people, it's just, let's move on. Let's get to the red letter stuff and just forget that. But other people were like, I can't so quickly or so easily move on. What do we do with this? All right, so real quick, the context of Joshua six is through Abraham and his family, God creates the nation of Israel. Israel ends up in Egypt where they're enslaved. And then Moses leads them out of that slavery. They go into the wilderness where they're headed to the promised land, land that God promised 
Abraham, but through their disobedience, what happens is they wind up wandering for 40 years for a generation to pass away. And at the end um, of, of the first couple books of the Bible, they're at the Jordan River. They're on the edge of this promised land. Moses passes away, and the guy that takes the baton is Joshua. And Joshua is leading the people into this land. So they, they cross the river, they're in the promised land. The only problem is the land is occupied. There are people who live in this land. So it's not just they're not walking into a, a fresh place with no one there, there's people there. And so a lot of Joshua is these conflicts with the people who already live in the land. And so in chapter six, we have the story of Jericho, which is a, a common children's storybook Bible story that we, we've told. So let's pick up in verse 15. It says, on the seventh day, they rose early at dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. So in verses 15 through 20, we're still in the neighborhood of children's Bible stories. Like we're still in the neighborhood of we can put this in a children's Bible story and we can make a song about it and they can sing it in Sunday school and, and the walls came tumbling down. Like, like we're good at this point, but if we continue on, it gets troubling, right? This is where a tornado rips through that neighborhood. So in verse 21, it continues and says, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. It's like, like, how do we deal with this? Is our way of dealing with this just creating a catchy children's song, then moving on? Or do we have to sit with this and say, what's, what's going on here? Right? And so what I want us to do is to look at God and to see whether or not is he an unpleasant, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Is, is the, this God who would just come in and wipe out a whole nation a whole, or a whole group of people, the Canaanites, is that God an unpleasant, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser? Um, real quick, I, I want to make a disclaimer um, because... This, this issue and these questions, we would love for them to fit in a nice, neatly packaged box. Like, here's the box, here's the answer, solved. And that's, I'm just telling you, I've, I'm wrestling with this, I've been wrestling with this, and it's not something that ever just fits neatly into um, a package. And so I'm not coming at this, any of these questions we've talked about, I'm not coming at them as the problem solver. I just, I can't do that, I can't carry that weight. Um, so my goal is not to solve the problem for you, but to at least give you perspective. 
to, like, if you think about sitting in this room, if, if you're sitting in a bad seat, you have the pillar blocking you and you're like, I have no idea what's happening, right? And so, but if you could get a different seat, all of a sudden you can see things that you couldn't see before. My hope is, is to give you a view that maybe you can see this issue from an angle you haven't seen before. And, and will it answer the question for you? Maybe, maybe not, but at least you can gain a different perspective and hopefully a better perspective, right? To, so to see this issue with a better view, we need to lay two pieces of foundation, okay? So this is kind of a two-point sermon. I wanna lay two pieces of foundation. The first piece of foundation revolves around how to read the Bible, and the second one is around understanding the holiness of God, all right? So, so how to read the Bible. Have you ever been cornered by someone who asks the question, do you read the Bible literally? And so they're like, do you, do, you, do, you really, do you read the Bible literally? And when they say that, you feel a little bit cornered. It's like, okay, if I say, no, I don't read it literally, then it feels like you're maybe opening the whole thing up to where truth is now relative, where truth is now subjective, where, where there's, there's no really ability for you to make any truth claims because what's to say that this isn't literal or this is? And so you just kind of feel like, ah, but you also know that if you say, Yes, I, I do read the Bible literally. They've got five texts. They're ready to throw in your face to prove you wrong. And you're just like, I don't know what to do. So maybe you've had that question. You don't know how to navigate it. Um, a better way to read the Bible is to say, I don't read the Bible literally, but I read the Bible literarily, okay? So instead of reading the Bible literally, we want to read the Bible literarily, which means that we wanna read it within the context of its literary genre, okay? We wanna read scripture in the context of its literary genre. So as you read scripture, you have some historical narrative, you have some prophetic, you have some letters, you have some poetry, you have some apocalyptic stuff. And so every genre needs to be approached from a different um, angle. And so if you read the Psalms and it's speaking poetically and it talks about the trees clapping their hands, we don't literally believe trees have hands. Like, like that's that we understand that through the genre. So when you're reading historical narrative, which is what the book of Joshua would fall under, we want to assume it's talking about something literally, unless there's a strong case to take it figuratively. Okay, so, so as we read this literarily, right, we will assume with historical narrative that it should be taken literally unless there's a strong case to take it figuratively. Now, if we go to the opposite end of the spectrum, we start talking about apocalyptic literature, right? We're gonna assume that it's symbolic unless there's a strong case that it's to be taken literal, right? So, so a different, but you, that's, that's what it looks like to read the Bible literarily, right? So for historical narrative, assume literal, unless there's a strong case that it's symbolic. For apocalyptic, assume symbolic, unless there's a strong case that it's literal, right? And so as you read the book of Joshua, its genre is historical narrative, but it's historical narrative that's written in the ancient Near East, Okay, and so the question we have to ask is when it uses this sweeping language of total destruction, is that literal or is there a strong case that can be made that it's hyperbole, all right? And so I would say that, that if you look at the way this phrase is used through other parts of the scripture, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, talking about the Canaanites, um, God says, look, drive the Canaanites out. 
And then he says, destroy them. Like same, same language, totally destroy them. And then right after that, it says, and don't marry them or do business with them. And so you're like, like, how do you marry someone who's been destroyed? How do you do business with someone that's been destroyed? Why was that command in there unless it assumes that they're still around, which would help us to know that that total destruction isn't literal in Deuteronomy 7, but it is hyperbole, right? Or if you go to, um, to like Jeremiah 25, Okay, in Jeremiah, um, if you think about the nation of Israel, it eventually splits, right? So you have a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah. Um, Israel is taken over by the Syrians. About 100 years later, Babylon comes in and destroys Judah. Well, in Jeremiah 25, it prophesies the destruction of Judah, and it talks about how they will be totally destroyed, like all of who they are will be conquered and destroyed, wiped out, same language. But by the end of the Babylonian captivity, Judah still has a remnant and they're brought into exile. They eventually, through the Persians, are allowed to come back to their land and to reestablish themselves. So are they totally destroyed? No, because it's using larger than life language because it's speaking in hyperbole, right? And so I believe that what's happening in Joshua chapter six is it's, it's, I think there's a strong case to say that this all, devoted all in the city to destruction, is hyperbole, right? But as we read that, that still doesn't help us to like, well, okay, well, like, so why did God have to use that language in this? Like I said, that, that's why it's still a struggle for me because I'm like, God could have used lighter language, so why did he choose to use such big language? Okay, why did he use, I mean, the, this language that matches ancient Near Eastern war accounts of totality, it's, it's common in this time frame. But why did God choose to use that? All right, and so that's a question we have to, have to wrestle with. But the first piece of foundation I want to, to lay is reading the Bible. As we approach texts like this, we want to read it literarily, all right? The next piece of the foundation we need to lay is the holiness of God. We want to understand the holiness of God. And when we think about God being holy, maybe we sing that in a song, holy, holy, holy. As we think about this, we need to know that it means that God is morally perfect, but it means more than that that he's utterly unique, that he is set apart. It's, the, it's God being the source of all that's beautiful and good, right? And so when we think about God's holiness, we tend to, we tend to rightly, as a culture, make much of God's grace and love. Like we understand that God is forgiving, God is loving. And so it's, it's easy for us to understand salvation because we, might, we rightly make much of God's grace and love. But because we tend to think of God as being less than he is and think of ourselves as better than we are, we, on the other side, tend to make little or make light of um, God's justice and wrath. So instead of, instead of properly understanding the balance between God's grace and love and his justice and wrath, we tend to kind of just do away with the justice and wrath. We're like, well, we're not that bad of people. God, I mean, he's good, he's a good person, but like, because we don't understand the depths of that and the heights of that, we struggle to understand justice and wrath, right? But the truth is, as a holy God, God has to punish evil. God has to punish evil. If he did not punish evil, if he did not deal with wickedness, um, he would not be a just and righteous king. He would not be a just and righteous Lord. He, would, he might be a good guy, 
a loving God, but he wouldn't be just. And so the holiness of God balances his grace and love with his justice and wrath. Okay, so understanding the, the holiness of God, we need to take that and put it in light of Joshua 6. So if we back way up to Genesis 15, okay, you're like, this is Bible drill time. Don't worry, I won't make you flip there. But in Genesis chapter 15, God is making a covenant with Abraham. And while making a covenant with Abraham, he says, look, there's a land I'm gonna bring you to, but there are some evil nations that have to be punished. And he says that these nations are not as evil as they could be, which means like they, 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 they could be worse than they are, but if their wickedness doesn't change, if they don't turn around and turn to God, there's gonna come a day when God's patience runs out and he has to deal with their wickedness. And so the nations he mentions, um, and starting in verse 19 of Genesis 15 says, it says the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. It's like a lot of ites, okay? But what's happening in Joshua 6 is we get to the Canaanites, right? What's happened here is they were wicked 450 years prior to Joshua 6. 450 years prior to this, God says their wickedness needs to be dealt with, but he is patiently giving them generation after generation after generation a chance to change and to turn to him. All right, so, so two observations on Genesis 15 in relation to Joshua 6. One has to do with ethnicity, all right? So sometimes people will make this look like God is an ethnic cleanser, that he's wiping out a whole people group here. Um, but when you look at Moses' father-in-law, he was a Kenite, mentioned in Genesis 15. When you look at Caleb, who was Joshua's like fellow spy as they went into the land, Caleb was a Kenizzite. Uriah, one of David's greatest mighty men, was a Hittite. As you, as you read like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, like we see that Israel's origin of birth actually comes from the Canaanites. And so if you think about, um, for, for lack of a better illustration, let's say that Ireland decided to just go to war and they're like, we're gonna wipe out the Scottish. And then like Welch people are like, we're in this too. Like we're gonna fight. And all, and like all these like three groups start fighting. No one's like, that's a lot of ethnic tension. Like they all come from like a Celtic background. It's like, it's like they're, they're, there's not really an ethnic battle there. Something else must be going on. And so when we look at Israel wiping out the Canaanites, it's actually, it has nothing to do with ethnicity. Like these aren't different ethnicities. It has everything to do with the Canaanites' morality and their spirituality, right? So this has, so I just wanna make that statement that this has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has everything to do though with evil, you see, the Canaanites aren't these peaceful people like the Amis just minding their own business. They're not like, we're just making things out of wood. You know, like, like no, they're, they're evil, evil people. When you think about the things that the Canaanites were partaking in when it comes to sexuality, all right? If you, if you look at the, the images and the pictures of what they were doing, it was horrific. 
It wasn't like, this is a little scandalous for Netflix. Like Disney, don't bring this into my kid's room. Like it's like, it's not just that this is edgy. It was disgusting stuff that they were partaking in, okay? It would make guys like Hugh Hefner blush and be like, way too far. Like this was horrific stuff that they were doing sexually. But then when you think about their worship of Baal, right? There, there's a picture of, of Canaanites worship to Baal where it depicts child sacrifice, okay? There are graveyards that have been discovered in Israel with tens of thousands of infant corpses that are related to the Canaanites. The Canaanites are guilty of killing tens of thousands of infants. And so in this picture of Baal worship, you have the statue of Baal with a, with a furnace in it. Right? The furnace is burning red hot coal and from that furnace is outstretched arms with hands. The hands are depicted as being completely red from the heat of the furnace. And what they would do in worship to Baal is they would take a child and unwrap it from its clothes. Imagine this kid beginning to cry as it gets cold, but then they would lay that, that crying child onto the red hot hands of Baal and the cries would turn to screams. And then from the angle of the hands, the child would slowly slide in pain into the furnace where it would continue to burn. This was the type of stuff that was celebrated and participated in. These people were evil, okay? Evil, evil, evil. And when we think about this, the question might switch where it's not how could God judge them, but why did it take so long? Like is it the question, and we live in the tension between these two ifs of why is God patient and why would God destroy? And, and, we, and that's, that's another, it's like, it doesn't neatly fit into my box because I'm like, we live in this tension of the whys. Why would God destroy them? Why would God be patient with them? And, and the truth is that only God and his infinite wisdom knows when to be patient and when to say enough. But what it seems like to me in Joshua 6 is that God gets to the point and he says, I've heard enough. I cannot hear the cry and the screams of one more child. It stops now. I want it all wiped out. I want it all done away with. I, we have to destroy it all. I've had enough. And God in his wisdom knows when to be patient and when to say enough. And in Joshua 6, it's, it's, it's not God ethnically cleansing something. It's God justly punishing evil and giving a nation what it deserves after 450 years of choosing to reject his grace. So I don't believe that this is genocide. So when the question is raised, like, is God an unpleasant, vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser? When we think about God's holiness in relation to his justice, it's not. Think about it like this. Um, let's say that you inject deadly poison into someone's body to kill them. You, you, you inject someone's body with deadly poison to kill them. Is it murder? Depends. If you are a criminal and you're trying to, to get back at your enemy, absolutely. But let's say that you work at a prison and you have been authorized to administer lethal injection and a judge has determined that this person has received the death sentence and you are administering lethal injection 
as a just punishment for a crime committed. Is that murder? On the surface, it might seem like the same act, but understanding justice and the right to administer changes everything. And so what we have here is Israel administering a just sentencing from a good, righteous God. So this is not God condemning or condoning evil or commanding evil. It's, a, it's an event where God is choosing to punish evil with what it deserves. All right, like, and I get it. Like, like I said, this, this isn't a neatly wrapped box. So just to, to conclude, let me tell you how, how I found a lot of help with these types of questions. All right, so I'm not standing up here as like, I've got it all figured out. Um, I, I, I still wrestle. But what I found is, is identify with David in Psalm 31. In Psalm 31, David just admits that there are things about God that he will never understand this side of eternity. But he says that he finds rest in God's character. And so as we wrestle in the tension of the two whys, why would he destroy? Why would he wait? How do we deal with it? We can rest in the character of God, knowing who he is. And, and I believe the character of God is most clearly seen at the cross. You see, think about this. God is just, and evil and sin has to be dealt with, okay? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, continues the good news. But that's where like, we think about that. If God was just to look past our sin, hey, your stuff wasn't that big of a deal. Like, I'm just gonna look the other way, come on in. And your sin's not dealt with, would God be gracious? Yes. But would he be just? No. If God came in and just wiped us out, like I, I, I recently was reading through Genesis and thinking about the story of Noah. Sometimes, sometimes the story of Noah is told wrongly, where it's everyone was evil, Noah was good, God saved Noah. No, no, no. The story of Noah is everyone's bad. Noah's not a good guy. It's not a story of God choosing someone good. It's about God showing grace to someone who doesn't deserve it, okay? So if God came in and just wiped us all out because of our sin, because sin has to be dealt with, would he be just? Yes. But would he be gracious? So if God in his holiness is both fully gracious and fully just, how can he handle sin? The only way possible is through the cross, you see, at the cross, Jesus steps into history. He is fully God, so this isn't, just, this isn't divine child abuse. He is fully God. He's a grown man able to make his own decisions, and from his free will, he chooses to submit to God the Father, and he says, I will take the punishment of their sin so they can take my righteousness. And he takes the punishment that we deserve, fully experiencing the, the wrath of God on our behalf, so sin is dealt with at the cross on Jesus, making God just. And then Jesus rises victoriously from the grave, making a way for us to have eternal life, extending to us forgiveness, saying there is therefore now no condemnation, carrying the weight and the guilt of our sin and, and bringing it as far as the east is from the west and saying it's finished. It's done with. You are fully forgiven. You are forever loved because of my son, Jesus Christ. 
And so at the cross, not only is he just, but he's also gracious. You see, that's the character of God on display. In knowing God's justice, that he deals with wickedness, he's not leaving it um, unpunished, but he will conquer it. And knowing that he is extending grace to us and giving us chance after chance to come to him, that's the character of God that we should be able to rest in. And that's what's being offered to us today in the midst of our questions, that God is good. He is holy. Everything he does is right. And there is rest in him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hard texts that remind us that we are finite beings trying to understand an infinite God. And if we could fully understand you, if we could, if we could wrap it all up nicely and, and, and fully put our minds around you, then you wouldn't be God. At least you, you wouldn't be a God worthy of our worship. But because you are bigger, God, because your holiness is, is, is beyond what we're even capable of, of comprehending, God, we, we find ourselves and say all we need to do or all we can do is to, to rest in your character, what we do know, and to raise our hands and to say, God, I trust you and I love you and I find rest in you. So God, help us to rest in who you are. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about us, you can check out our social media or website. Grace and peace to you.